Very good. In John chapter 8, as a reminder, we saw that Jesus is the light. He's the light, and upon this declaration, a number of the Jewish crowd is moved to believe. And in their believing, it, it, it's shown as Jesus interacted with them that we looked at last week in his statement that he is the truth that sets one free. They immediately turn on Jesus. They do not believe in him. Rather, at the end, the very final verse of chapter 8, verse 59, they picked up stones to kill him. And so the story that we see today is upon right after Jesus seeing and knowing, and knowing it's not the time for him to lay down his life, he disappears from the temple, he moves, he hides himself, and then he moves on. And it's along his way that he sees this man born blind. Now, the first part of what uh, Gene, a, a faithful uh, brother and elder, and fitting a, uh, a good surgeon, a doctor, for a text like this of a man who comes and has his life shifted to have Gene read for us today. The very first portion of this text would go viral if cameras were around, wouldn't it? A man born blind gaining sight. That would go absolutely viral, but it's the very last portion in which Jesus comes and finds the man again who, though he can physically see, is still yet spiritually blind, that Jesus gives him eternal sight. The light shines into the depth and ultimate darkness and gives life and light. So as believers this morning, as we gather, we're moved to rejoicing. As we notice these four phases in this man's life, he first has an interaction with Jesus, and it leads him to tell people confidently who he is. And as the text develops, we note a second component. The man goes further and says that Jesus is a prophet. He's a prophet, so I'm going to listen to him. And the text develops further in his understanding of Jesus. And he says, Jesus, I'm going to be one of his disciples. He's worth my following. And then ultimately, it, this, this text explodes into this beautiful portion in which Jesus asks him. Jesus seeks him out and finds him. And the man gives this declaration, I believe. He believes in Jesus and he worships him as the Daniel 7 son of man. The text is absolutely incredible, and for some, in reality, that you may be here this morning and you've never moved through that progression, you've never come to this fourth component of believing that Jesus is God, the eternal Son of Man sent from above, taken on flesh. You've never come to believe that He's worthy of your worship for all of your life, and this is the good news that we pray that God would change your heart, but for the multitude of us that, that do believe that Jesus is indeed the Son of Man sent from above, worthy of our worship, this is a text that brings us to joy and peace and celebration this morning. So though there's many things we could examine in John chapter 9, what I want to do in this portion is just look at the progression of belief, the progression of grace, light shining into darkness that slowly, gradually, boom, culminates in worship. So let's note in the first 12 verses, as we see in this man's initial interaction with Jesus, he concludes that Jesus is the greatest doctor, and I will tell people how he healed me. He has this experience with Jesus, and he concludes that Jesus is the greatest doctor, 
and I will tell people how he healed me. In the book of Acts, it's clear that God determined our boundaries and set our places that we might cry out to God. And for this man, God would place him along the road. It's very possible in John chapter 8, verse 59, if those people that aren't moved to anger don't pick up stones to try to kill Jesus, Jesus doesn't flee at this time to interact with this man who's begging on the side of the road. That was his job. Blind from birth. And his life would be changed as God takes a horrible, unjust situation of sinners trying to kill the holy Son of Man. And he would leave and bring salvation to this man born blind. So what I'd like for us to do in this, this first point, okay, is this is going to make note-taking a little difficult. Uh, I would like for you to close your eyes for much of this first point. And if your neighbor starts snoring, just reach out as far as you can and try and uh, put them awake, okay? Don't put them to sleep. Put them awake. So what I'd like you to do, if you wouldn't mind, just close your eyes. Close your eyes. And I want you to imagine that you are this man born blind. Your whole life, this is all you've known. You've never seen the faces of your parents. Your whole life, your vocation, if you will, has been forced to sit along the dusty road, being the beneficiary of alms, of gracious gifts of others as you begged. It's all you've known. And it's on this day that you hear people around you start speaking and say, He's coming. He's coming this way. You're curious, and then finally you hear voices that you've never heard travel by you in your lifetime. You'll soon find that they're the voices of Jesus' disciples, and they ask a question that you've wondered your entire life. Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? You've had a lot of time to think. You've wondered and you've realized that from the fall of Adam, sin has impacted all of the earth. Your parents, as we'll find later in the story, likely conceived you out of wedlock or in some way a, a shameful, sinful way. And you've wondered this, God, why am I born blind? Is it my fault or perhaps it's my parents' fault? The consequences. And for the very first time in your life, you hear his voice, the voice of light who has come into darkness, and he answers the question you have wondered every single day of your life. This man was born blind that the works of God might be displayed in him. What begins to pop into your ears? You realize he's talking about you. Goosebumps. You still can't see, but sparks of hope are flickering in your mind. He's talking about me. You don't know exactly what's going to happen next, but you hear him spit. And you hear rubbing on the ground. And he takes mud and he places it on your eyes. Having been blind your whole life, you know how to move around the city. 
And he tells you, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. You don't ask questions immediately with the small bit of hope that you finally have in your entire life. You leave and you find the water and you wash and open your eyes. You see for the first time. Beautifully, you see images. You see the water. You look around the pool and you see other people that are there begging all around you. Your eyes are open now and you can open your eyes again for the sake that you do not fall asleep in the rest of the sermon But who do you want to go see? Who's the first person you would want to go see, even more than your parents? You want to go see Jesus, so you return back to where you came from, but Jesus is not there. He's not there. You see the spot that you had marked out, that you had sat in day after day after day, year after year. This was your vocation. You were into this forced humility. And you're greeted not by Jesus, you don't see him, but rather the people that had seen you. And they're asking you questions now. They see your joy. I mean, do you imagine what you'd be thinking and what you'd be feeling, how excited you would be, just absolutely awestruck. And the people that have walked by you for so much time are also asking those questions. The the crowd, your former neighbors, you know their voices and now you see their faces. And some of them are saying, This is unbelievable. It's him. And then others are saying, that's not him. That's impossible. It's a lookalike. Maybe he's got a cousin we didn't know about that conceit. Now, why are they doing this? Is it because perhaps they did the thing that we do when we go by somebody and we know they're in need and we don't want to look at them? Have they done that to this man for a long time? Or very possibly it's because their minds, our minds cannot comprehend a miracle taking place. Their minds are blown at what they see. And they meet him with questions. And how does the man respond? He's had an interaction with Jesus, the great physician. And he simply responds boldly in the truth. He tells them exactly what took place. He's unashamed. He doesn't edit the story. He tells them the truth. He's met Jesus as the great doctor who has changed his life and given him sight. And he's unashamed to tell them exactly that. What we see in the very first components of this man's understanding of who Jesus is ought to lead us as believers that it is never appropriate for believers to be labeled as cynics or pessimists. Because as believers, we see the truth that that God is good and faithful and just in all His ways. That he does whatever he pleases. And what does this do for us as believers? It anchors us to realize that the old infomercial saying is true. But wait, there's more. When we see injustice, when sin and death strike, for the believer we're reminded, but wait, there's more. Now if the story stopped here, that would be a great story, a great text. But God has something greater for this man. But what we want to note before we continue on in this story and see how the man's understanding of Jesus progresses from saying, he's the great doctor who's worthy of my testimony, telling people about him. What we want to note is hand in hand with his understanding of who Jesus is will also happen as that develops and gets more and more serious. We'll also note that the sufferings and hardship that he experiences also progresses. 
The more he accurately perceives Jesus, the more he responds appropriately from simply telling people about the experience he had with Jesus all the way to worshiping Jesus. So too comes the lot of suffering that happens in his life. And yet from the very beginning, we see in Jesus' words, right in these first few verses, that he reminds his disciples that every step that he takes is a step closer to the cross. They can see now, but a time will come when, when Jesus will leave. He knows every day that comes by is a day closer to the cross to pay the debt for which he came to pay as the sinless Lamb of God. That's good news that we have as a reminder that what appears to be overwhelming and what is indeed unjust and sin for the believer, wait, there's more. I hope that you remind, remember this story every time you're up at 11.30 and you see an infomercial. But wait, there's more. Oh, yes, my hope in Jesus. At the very least, maybe you won't buy that product, okay? So let's continue on. As the story progresses, so too does the man's understanding and commitment to Jesus. As he sees in verse 13 through 17, he identifies Jesus as a prophet. And as a prophet, he's worthy of listening to. He's worthy of listening to. Jesus is a prophet, and I'm going to listen to him. Now, we noted in verse 16, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who's a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. This is the second time that Jesus, Jesus is okay if you do miracles, but do not do them on the Sabbath. In John chapter 5, that's the lame man text. He healed the lame man. He did it on the Sabbath, and it causes this massive conflict. But now Jesus has done a miracle that is so in your face that the Pharisees are appears to be more. Beforehand, it looked like just Nicodemus is the one that's articulating there's something more to Jesus than how you all are treating him. He's more than just a rabbi. He's more than just a teacher. Now, remember, they shut Nicodemus down. But now what Jesus has done, this miracle, has moved a portion of the Pharisees to also say, we can't write him off anymore. So there's a division that's taking place among the Pharisees. It's undeniable. And there's two options that begin to take place. What did Jesus' disciples present to him? How many options? Two options, right? Two options. Why is this man born blind? Is it because he sinned or is it because, door number two, his parents sinned, which would be Exodus 34. And Jesus says it's door number three, actually. It's that this man, the glory of God, might be shown in this man this day. So that means that of all the things, as Jesus told us, all the works that he, the, the Father had given him to do, he would do them. That means from eternity past, in God's kindness. Listen, this is our God. This is so good. In eternity past, part of the good gifts that God would give would be that he would heal this man born blind. He would heal him. He didn't have to. He didn't heal everybody. But he would show forth this testimony through this man, born blind, sitting on the road this day. Jesus would be traveling this day because other people picked up stones to kill him. It's like Joseph, what you meant for evil, God used for good. That's good news, church family. 
So in a similar light to what the disciples said, is it door number one or door number two? Jesus says it's actually door number three. Now we have two sides, the Pharisees. Pharisees A, Pharisees B. And what does the man say? It's actually door number three. He is a prophet. I'm not going to side with group A or group B. I'm siding with Jesus because he is clearly a prophet from God. I'm going to listen to him, not to either of your sides. Not only am I going to listen to him, you all should listen to him as well. So as the story has progressed into verse 17, it's become clear that this man, his experience with Jesus, will not be a one-off. It will not be a simple experience. But Jesus is going to mark this man's life for the rest of his life. And as God's grace is digging down into his soul and into his mind. The man refuses to let it be a simple experience. With boldness, he says before the Pharisees, the religious and political leaders for the Jews, he's a prophet. That's who he is. What boldness. Do you know people, let me ask you, do you know people like this, though? that maybe they have an experience with God of some sort. It could have been when they were younger at camp, which is a great ministry. It could have been they were healed in some way. It could be God delivered them from a trial, and they know the fingerprints of God were all over it. But their experience with God, they respect God, they believe in God. They know there's something more to Jesus than just this figure from the past, but their experience with God is limited to a past event. There's no living relationship. For the man, it's clear he's moved from an experience with God he'll give a testimony about. It's gone deeper. He's a prophet, and I'm going to listen to him. The boldness in his voice, but the text doesn't stay there, does it? Look how it progresses in verses 18 through 34. Jesus is from God, the man says, and I'm going to follow after him. He's a prophet who speaks words of God, but also he's from God, and therefore my life now is no longer here. I've got a new job, and that's I'm going to follow him. I'm going to follow him. And you think about the man's life. He's leaving what he's known. We might say what he's known doesn't seem like much by worldly standards, but he's going to follow after Jesus, someone he's never physically seen yet. Think about the faith that that would take. He's had an experience, but he's still never physically seen him. And he says, I'm one of his disciples. I'm going to follow after him. I'm going to learn of Jesus and follow after Jesus. Those guys' voices who I heard ask Jesus the question, who sinned that this man was born blind, he or his parents? I want to be one of those guys. I want to follow and ask Jesus questions. I want to listen to him and abide by him and obey him. He's gone deeper and deeper in his understanding of who Jesus is. And in verse 18 through 34, the Pharisees come to, G to uh, the blind man, the now-seeing man's parents, and they are terrified. They're terrified. Did you see how they responded? They ask him about, is this your son? What happened to him? They ask for their eyewitness accounts, their testimonies. And how do they respond? He's of age, 
So why don't you all go and ask him? They deflect the question, why? Because the consequences, as we've already seen in the text, is that those who profess Jesus to be the Christ, they're disfellowshipped. They would have been kicked out of the synagogue, the place of the proclamation of the Word of God. The shepherds would have cut them off. Can you imagine their day at this moment? Try and imagine this. You don't have to close your eyes for this one. But imagine this. Imagine you're his mother or his father. From the very first time you held him in your arms, he was blind, could never see. And he sought you out on this day. And you make eye contact for the first time. Can you imagine the, the tears that would be streaming from their eyes? The greatest day since the boy's birth probably in your life. A day you'll never forget. And it's that same day then a moment of hours becomes perhaps the most anxious day you've ever had. Because you face the very real possibility of being cut off from fellowship from the people of God if you confess that Jesus is the Christ. What a day. So they deflect and he says, and they say, Jesus is of age, or this man's of age, our son's of age, which in that culture would be 13 years old. You had to be 13 to give a, a, a standard testimony. So from the Greek, we'd, it, 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 it calls him a man. So we would assume he's older. It doesn't use the word naniskos, the word for young man, or it doesn't use the word for child. So we don't know how old he is. We don't know if the parents, if the guy's looking like 40 years old, and they're like, he's of age. Well, of course he's of age. He's clearly older than 13, but he could be a late teenager. Regardless, they are terrified, and they deflect. And now the man, for the first time, they're facing a reality that we can now see our son. Our son can now see Jesus has changed our lives. But he might change it for the worse. Because if our son does not change his confession, he may be cut out of fellowship. Do you remember what Jesus says if your hand and eye causes you to lust in the Sermon on the Mount, what should you do with your eye? Pluck it out. Or it's better to enter into the kingdom than it is to have your eye, right? The parents are experiencing the opposite of this. I would imagine they're probably thinking, I wish that my son was still blind, that he may stay in fellowship with our faith. Jesus has complicated their lives. And the young boy hears this, and what does he do? Or the man that can now see? He sees perhaps the fear on their faces, and he's moved to courage. He's moved to courage. Look what he says. I mean, you almost laugh at this. I'm not sure how he intends this, but it comes off to me pretty comically. He leans into their intimidation. He hears his parents say, he's of age, ask him. And he leans in and he says, what? To the Pharisees, 
Do y'all also want to become his disciples too? You want to follow, I want to follow Jesus. You want to follow Jesus too? I'll have company as we go and follow after him. It's, it's almost, you almost laugh reading that. And, and what's the response right back to him? It says they reviled him. They reviled him. Just like the people that we saw in the previous interaction that claimed to believe at Jesus' exposure of who he truly is as the eternal Son of God made flesh. They revile him and want to kill him with stones. The Pharisees hear this claim of who Jesus is worthy of following and, and they revile him. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 4, he tells the church in Corinth as he told all the churches around, he says, what do we do, believer, as we're reviled? He says, when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. And he tells them that we have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all people, of all things. But then he tells the church in Corinth in verse 16, I urge you then be imitators of me, my beloved, of Timothy, my faithful child in the Lord, to remind you, I've sent him to you, to remind you of the ways, my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. With reviling we bless. This man whose understanding of Jesus has gone deeper Deeper than just an experience. Deeper than just he's worth listening to. Now to the point of saying he's worth obeying and following. And with that commitment, even though he still doesn't recognize who Jesus is, with that deeper commitment comes a dividend of suffering. And the Pharisees do to him what the crowd of false believers tried to do to Jesus. They tried to throw Jesus out of this world by killing him. And now this man that's beginning to show and reflect the light, they throw him out of fellowship. They cast him out. In their minds, they're doing a good thing. They're handing him over to destruction that he might repent and come back into fellowship. But what they don't have the authority to do, yes, they have the authority to cast him out of the synagogue, the place where the word was proclaimed. But what, praise God, they do not have the authority to do is cast him away from the word made flesh, right? This is what leads us right into this great understanding, the recognition of exactly who Jesus is. In verses 35 and 38, the previous text to this point would go viral and certainly has changed this man's life, but it's this text that truly changes his eternity. He says that Jesus is the Son of Man and I'm going to worship Him. This becomes his confession. He is the Son of Man and I am going to worship Him. That is the only rational response. I'm not just going to give ear to what he says. I'm not just going to see where he goes and walk after him. I'm going to worship him. Believer, isn't this our purpose? To worship him. To rest in him. To abide in him. This is the good news. This is light. This man comes to know Jesus. Jesus hears what happens to the man, and Jesus comes back and finds him. How cool is that? Jesus comes back and he finds him. He seeks him out. Jesus, let me read it again. In verse 35, Jesus heard that they cast him out, and having found him, he said, 
Do you believe in the Son of Man? Daniel 7 reference. And he answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? At this point, we remember that he's not yet seen Jesus' face. We think he'd recognize his voice, but we don't know that for sure. But what we do know is that he longs to believe. The Lord is already working on his heart and life. And Jesus reveals who he is. Verse 37, Jesus said to him, you have seen him. Let's stop on that. How powerful is that word, seen, to a man born blind that can now see? Bleppo to see. You've seen him. What does that mean? It's not a figure of speech. It's a testimony of his life that's changed already because of Jesus. He tells him, you've seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you to make it crystal clear. Beforehand, the only way he would know somebody is if they were speaking to him. But now he can see. And Jesus is clear, it's me. I am the Son of Man. And what did the man say? Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. One group, two people claim to believe in John chapter 8 and John chapter 9. When one experiences a greater understanding of who Jesus is, the pseudo-believers are moved to disgust and suppress. But those for whom the Son has come, they hear who Jesus is, they see who Jesus is, and they believe and they're moved to worship. That's good news this morning, church family. This is an unbelievable story of the God who has entered into human time and space. He sustains us. He made us. He testified exactly who He is, and the same statement is for us. We've heard of who Jesus is. Now the question is, what do we do with that? That's the good news we have before us this morning. That's the confession of the believer. In this story, I want to play it back from the very beginning. Imagine the absurdity when they walk through, they see the clearly blind man in the street, and they ask the question, Jesus, who sinned that this man was born blind? Was it he or his parents? And imagine the man responded, I'm not blind. I see just fine. What a ridiculous question while he's clearly blind. How sad and absurd would that be? But that's the response that many make to Jesus. Jesus says that they are in bondage and he comes to set them free. Jesus says you are thirsty and I come as living water. Jesus says you are starving and I am the bread from heaven. Jesus says you are blind and I am the light from above. And multitudes hear this and they say, that is blasphemy. We're just fine. We can see just fine. They will not humble themselves and believe and worship Jesus for they're busy worshiping the God of this world. 
the good news is that all who come and believe upon Jesus will have eternal life, will be freed, will be guided by the light, will rest in Him, will have adoption as sons. This is the good news, church family. This is the confession that we embrace, that we may be born again, that we may see. In our next steps, two next steps, this man's healing changed his life, but, but more than that, his conversion changed his eternity and the world. And to this, I would ask, would you thank the Lord daily this week for the gift of your salvation? This past week, I've, I've been trying to apply one of our next steps from last week of praying for three different people that they would come to know Christ. I've been praying for one family member and two neighbors. And in my praying for those, I have been moved at the same time of my prayer, one, to conviction and grief that they don't know the Lord, and yet at the same time, like an other side of a coin, I have been moved, moved to thanksgiving. For the Lord has shown His grace and saved me. I don't think it's possible to intercede for others without at the same time having a spirit of humble, joyful thankfulness. And so just as last week we talked about praying for those that God would change their heart and give them life, soften their hearts and save them, this week, would you intentionally pray for the other component, thanking God for your salvation, and, and by God's grace, perhaps they'll just keep spinning around from joyful thankfulness for our salvation and move to pray for others that they would come to know Jesus, that they would gain eternal sight, not just physical sight. And finally, worship is transformative. Take time today to write out how believing and worshiping Jesus has changed the course of your life. Jesus has been changing the course of millions and millions of people's lives, including this blind man who became seeing and eternally seeing. He has made it well with our soul. Hasn't he, church family? He's made it well with our soul. That is a testimony that a broken world desperately needs to hear. Would you stand with me as we respond in song to our King?